You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. All right, so let's go ahead and jump right in. If you have your Bible, look at verse 9 with me. This last passage here in 2 Timothy uh, usually has a heading that says something like uh, personal instructions or, or final concerns or personal concerns or something like that. And that's because we are here at the end of this letter called Second Timothy. And by this point, the Apostle Paul has concluded uh, his pastoral exhortations to Timothy. His tone now turns from charging Timothy about ministry to now he's speaking personally about his own ministry, which means Paul gets here, he, he, he gets autobiographical. And, and he mentions in this passage uh, his past, his present, and his future, and that actually starts in verse 6, before we get to verse 9. The, the last pastoral exhortation to Timothy is in chapter 4, verse 5. We saw this last week. It's that concluding, summarizing imperative to fulfill your ministry. Look at verse 5. Be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And when Paul says this, it kind of ushers him into considering the, the, the fulfillment of his own ministry. He's thinking about his own life, his own ministry. He thinks about his present here in verse 6. He says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. We see his past in verse 7. He looks back and says, Timothy, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I have kept the faith. And then we see his future in verse 8. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. Paul is saying here, beginning in verse 6, that there's nothing much left for him here. He's been faithful to his calling. And now what is most on his mind, what he's thinking about most of the time these days, is seeing the face of Jesus. That, that is the perspective that Paul has here. That, that is the unsmudged clarity on reality that Paul has here at the end of this letter. And it's in this context of that perspective and that clarity that Paul here gives us these personal instructions. And this is really important for us to know. We, we should see verses 9 to 22 as the natural extension of what Paul has already been saying. Okay, so... Maybe ignore the heading there above verse 9. This is just continuing a theme that he has already begun in verse 6. Having already become personal in verse 6, Paul ends this letter with this last passage of practical requests and reports. He is requesting of Timothy some very practical things. He's reporting to Timothy his recent experiences and I believe that Paul in this passage, in this final passage of 2 Timothy, Paul in this passage models for us two truths that could change our lives. These are two truths that you probably know. It's something you probably know. These are two truths that you have probably heard before. But the way that we see the Apostle Paul apply these truths in this passage is absolutely beautiful. It's stunning the way Paul models these truths. Here they are, two truths. Truth number one, we need people. 
truth number two. Jesus is enough. This sermon is about these two truths. Let's pray and we'll get started. Father in heaven, we believe that you speak through your word. And in moments like this, like simple, plain, ordinary moments like this, when your word is open before us, we, we long to hear what you have to say. We want to hear from you, God. And so help us now. Help us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So the first truth I want us to see is that we need people. Paul models this right away for us in verse 9 when he says to Timothy, Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. Now this word here for do your best is the same word that Paul uses back in chapter 2 verse 15 when he says do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. There's an intensity and a rush to what Paul is saying here. He, He really, really wants Timothy to come see him. Try hard, Timothy, to come. Do your best. Make every effort, Timothy, to get here. And then Paul says again in verse 12, when you come, which, which means in verse 12, this is still on the front of his mind. He's saying, do your best, Timothy, to come to me. And when you come, meaning you're going to come, right? Like you're coming, right, Timothy? You're coming. So when you come. And then in verse 29, we see him say the same thing again. Verse, 20, verse 21, excuse me, he says, do your best to come before winter. This is the same thing that Paul says in verse 9, but now he adds this timeline. He's saying to Timothy, hey, don't put this off. I, I, I need you here soon by winter, okay? Okay, by winter, I need you to be here by winter, Timothy. And this is, this is the theme, really, the, the, the theme of this final passage. Paul is locked in on this. He wants Timothy to visit him. Now, why? Well, it's because Paul, a human, knows that he needs Timothy, a fellow human. There are things that Paul desires. There are possibilities not yet realized that he knows will not happen in his isolation. He wants to do things that he knows he cannot do himself. See, Paul is very aware here at the end of this letter. He's very aware of his horizontal dependency. And I think we can learn from him. Each one of us, when it comes to life in general or when it comes to pretty much any venture we undertake, we swim in a matrix of horizontal need. God has created us this way. He has created us to to be people who depend on other people, who depend on other people, who depend on other people. This is fundamental to our humanness and it's a good thing that God made us this way. For us to realize our neediness is actually necessary for humility and wisdom and we should embrace this truth and live in it. And when we do, when, when we embrace this, when we've established the reality of our humanness, when we know that we need people, I think there are some details here in Paul's story that can help us out. Okay, so I want to show you these. Three things here I want to show you. Three takeaways from Paul's practical report that will help us as people who need people. Here's the first takeaway. 
Faithfulness is the key to usefulness. Look at verse 11. Now most of Paul's ministry partners have scattered. But in verse 11 he says, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you for he is very useful to me in ministry. And at first glance maybe this does not seem like a big deal to us. But then we remember that Paul and Mark have a history and so we, we go back to the book of Acts and there's a little story I want to remind you about in the book of Acts on Paul's first missionary journey. Paul on his first missionary journey was with Barnabas and in Acts chapter 12 verse 25 we read that Paul and Barnabas were bringing with them John whose other name was Mark. This is the same Mark that Paul is talking about here in 2 Timothy. Mark was on the team. But in Acts 13, 13, we read that Mark ended up leaving the team. Acts 13, 13 says, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, who is Mark, left them and returned to Jerusalem. Which means Paul and his team went one way, but Mark went a different way. And then later, a couple chapters later in Acts 15, when Paul and Barnabas are about to set sail on their second missionary journey, Barnabas wanted to take with them Mark. But Paul said, no, not going to happen. He's not coming. And Luke tells us exactly why Paul says this in Acts 15, 38. He says, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. It's fascinating there in chapter 15 that, that Mark's name is not even mentioned in that verse. To Paul, in Acts 15, in that moment, to Paul, Mark had become one who had withdrawn. Mark was a deserter. Mark was not team material, and so Paul cut him. Mark is out. Mark is off the team. Now, juxtapose that. Juxtapose that situation in Acts to what we read here in 2 Timothy 4.11. Paul tells Timothy here to get Mark and bring him. Why? Because Mark is very useful to me for ministry. This man, who at one time was a liability to Paul, is now an asset. This man, who was once turned down, is now among the few men that Paul wants to be with him. Now, how did that happen? We don't know exactly. Paul does mention Mark once before, in the book of Philemon. He calls him there a fellow worker. But we don't know the details of change that took place between Acts 15 and then. But we know it must have been significant. And whatever the details were, whatever the details are for this change, we know the verdict was faithfulness. Mark had shown himself to be faithful which almost certainly means that after being cut from the team in Acts 15, he did not ball up and cry and throw himself a pity party. He could have done that, right? We, 
We know he could have done that. He could have wallowed and whined and made excuses for why Paul wanted him off the team. He could have eventually just blamed Jesus for the whole thing and he could have abandoned the faith because people do that sort of thing all the time. We live in a world of whiners. Whiners. It's a funny word. I tell my kids, one thing I say to my kids is that if you, if you want to do something good with your life, first step, don't be a whiner. <laughs> if you can just not be a whiner, that's a great head start to making an impact in this world. Just don't be a whiner. Not whining is a good first step toward faithfulness. And if you would, for just a minute, indulge my speculation, I think that this was the case for Mark. I venture to say that Mark... Rather than whining about being cut from the team, I believe he learned something from this situation with Paul and he kept his chin up and he put his energies towards something productive like, I don't know, writing one of the four Gospels. And then Paul, at the end of his life, he wants Mark. He needs Mark. Because Mark is useful to him because Mark has been faithful. Faithfulness is the key to usefulness. That's number one. Here's the second takeaway. We need people. And second takeaway is enemies will be enemies. In verse 14, Paul reports on Alexander the coppersmith. And now there, there is an Alexander that's mentioned a couple, other to, a couple other times in the New Testament. And they are most likely the same guy that's being referred to. Paul mentions Alexander to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1 verse 20 and he calls him there a blasphemer. Paul mentions him again here as bad news and he tells Timothy, hey, watch out. Now we, we don't know the full details of what Alexander did but we know it was harmful, verse 14, and we know it was doctrinal in verse 15. Paul says in verse 15 that Alexander strongly opposed our message. Basically, Alexander did not like the gospel that Paul preached. And he did things to get in the way. And this is all, this is, this is ironic. This is all a little ironic because we need people. Paul knows that. We know that. We know that we need people but we don't need all people because some people, some people we emphatically do not need because those people are enemies and that will always be the case. We just need to know who they are. Horizontal dependency requires horizontal assessment and sometimes we must beware because enemies are out there. So don't be naive, be aware, be aware. Enemies will be enemies. Here's the third thing that we learned, the third takeaway here. We need people. We need people. And number three, people will disappoint you. Look at verse nine again. Timothy, do your best to come to me soon because I need people. For Demas, who is a person I needed, he's in love with this present world. And he has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. 
Now, I don't think here that Crescens and Titus are in the same boat as Demas. Demas has deserted Paul, and presumably he has abandoned the faith. But Paul says that these other two guys have just simply gone somewhere else. He says in verse 12 that he actually sent Tychicus somewhere else. He sent him somewhere else. So there are, are different reasons for why these men have gone different places. But the fact of the matter is that they're still not with Paul. And, and that was especially difficult for Paul in verse 16. Okay. Verse 16. In verse 16, Paul is reporting about his first defense. Now, this was most likely the first stage of his present trial. So he's, he's still going through this trial as he's writing this letter. And, and this first defense was something like his initial appearance before the court in Rome. And now we know from Acts 25 that Paul had appealed his case to Caesar. He wanted to go on trial before the Roman emperor. And that's where he now is headed. This is a really big deal for the Apostle Paul. This is a really big deal in history. And in this first defense here of Paul, standing before whoever he was standing before in Rome, he had to do it alone. He says in verse 6, No one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. And again, we don't know the full stories of each of these no ones and alls in verse 16. We don't know their stories. I'm sure that some of these no ones and alls in verse 16 had decent reasons for why they didn't make it. We don't know why they're not there, but we do know that Paul does not have hard feelings against them because he says here plainly, may it not be charged against them. Paul is being gracious here. And yet still, not being there is not being there. And not being there when you're needed there hurts. It's painful. We, we can imagine that there's a little bit of pain in Paul's heart as he's urging Timothy to come visit him. Paul wants Timothy to know that he was in a place, at his first defense, he was in a place where he needed his friends, but they weren't there because they left him. And that, that kind of disappointment, you're tracking with me here, right? That kind of disappointment, relational disappointment, when you need those relationships the most, that socks the soul, man, right? That is a punch in the gut. It hurts. And you know, you know, I don't need to tell you this. But the deeper that you go in your relationships, the more you rely on people, the more you know you need people, the riskier your life becomes because these people who you need will disappoint you. We're people. We're people who need people. We are just people who need just people. And there will be times when we will all let one another down. So deal with it, brothers and sisters. Deal with it. The inevitability 
of relational disappointment is not a reason not to need people. Especially when Jesus is enough. We need people. Truth number one, we need people. Truth number two, Jesus is enough. Verse 16, Paul says, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. That is my favorite sentence in the Bible. My favorite sentence in the Bible. Because Paul here is describing the practical nearness and strength of Jesus. And do we have any idea what that is like? I mean, do we have a clue what that is like? I, I want to end the sermon by talking about that. Okay, but first, I, I, w- I want us to look at here the, the purpose and the promise that Paul mentions in verses 17 and 18. And I'm going to do this part quickly. The purpose is mentioned right away in verse 17. Paul, uh, Jesus stood by Paul and strengthened Paul so that, this is the purpose, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. And that last phrase there about the lion's mouth is a metaphor for death. Paul is saying that Jesus spared him from death at his first defense in Rome. That was part of Jesus standing by Paul and strengthening Paul. Jesus sustained Paul's earthly life in that first defense because Paul, his purpose, had not yet been fulfilled. Now to depart and be with Christ is far better. Paul has told us that. He tells us that in the book of Philippians, but Jesus was not yet done with Paul, and until Jesus is done with Paul, it is necessary for Paul to stay here. That's true of Paul, and that's true of us. It means that, Christian, you're here today. You're here. You're alive. You exist because Jesus has a purpose for you, and he will fulfill that purpose. The purpose that Jesus had for Paul was to go to Rome and to stand before the Emperor Nero and to preach the gospel, which is what Paul would do. Paul would go on to stand before the ruler of the world's greatest superpower. And at that epicenter of the highest human authority, to the head of the Gentile world, through Paul, the message of Jesus would be fully proclaimed. That was Paul's next appointment when he's writing this letter, and he knew that would be his last. That's his purpose. Also notice the promise. Jesus, who was near to Paul and strengthening Paul, would rescue Paul from every evil deed and bring him safely into his heavenly kingdom. The promise here is not the absence of death, but it's victory over death. Because we know Paul died. Nero beheaded him but the evil deed of a sword through the neck did not have the final say for Paul in fact the violence of that sword only became Paul's safe passage into glory which is where he's at right now that evil deed that was done to Paul by Nero was just a little dot on the map and then Paul has Jesus forever that's the promise that we see here 
Paul knew that Jesus would rescue him. That's the promise and the purpose of Jesus' nearness and strength that we see in verses 17 and 18. But now I want to talk about what exactly is Jesus' nearness and strength. What, what exactly does it mean that Jesus stood by Paul and strengthened him? Well, first, at the very least, it means that Jesus will be there for you when others are not. Verse 16, remember, Paul says, no one came and stood by me. None of his friends, none of his ministry partners, nobody came and stood by him. But, in verse 17 he says, the Lord stood by me. Which means the Lord Jesus here, the Lord Jesus is contrasted to the disappointment Paul felt by relational absence. When others were not present and Paul needed them to be present, Jesus was present. Jesus showed up. Jesus was near. And Jesus being near Paul, standing by Paul, was to strengthen him. Which means that Jesus isn't just there for you when others are not, but he will do for you what others cannot do. He'll give you strength. Now Paul talks about the strength of Jesus all throughout his letters, and he's already talked about it in this letter. If you remember back in chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1 starts this way. He says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And in that sermon, we talked about how the grace that is in Christ Jesus is the same as saying Jesus who is full of grace. The, the strengthening in chapter 2 that Paul mentions is, is from Jesus in the same way that this strengthening is here in chapter 4. And this is the way that Paul lived. His experience here in 2 Timothy 4 was not a one-time thing. We actually read in the book of Acts, chapter 23, verse 11, that when Paul was on trial in Jerusalem, he's in Jerusalem on trial, and we read there that the Lord stood by him and Jesus actually told Paul in that instance, take courage. And I, I think that this scene in Acts gives us a little vantage into how this strengthening happens. Jesus strengthens by his nearness and by the nearness of his voice. Jesus communicates to us. Now we know, we, we know that his speaking comes through us by his scriptures. We know that Jesus has given us this book. Thank him for this book. We know that. But if we're going to really get what Paul is saying here, if this is if this is going to really make any sense to us at all, we first have to recognize that Paul understood a dimension of reality that often we don't. And it's that Jesus is real. See, most, most of us, most of the time, we live life as if Jesus were just an idea. It's, it's not that we don't believe in him, we do. 
We know who he is, we know what he's done, but throughout the details of our day, we, we do not orient to him. We, we don't think about him the same way we think about the real people that we see and interact with. And the more that we live this way day in and day out, we eventually regulate Jesus to a category of less real than the things that we constantly deal with. We, we act like Jesus is stuck in a shoebox that we've crammed somewhere deep in the hall closet. We, we function that way. Most of the time. And the first thing that we need to do is acknowledge that. We should acknowledge that this is normally how we live. Jesus tucked away in the shoebox. This is normally how we live. And I want you to, I just want you to know, I aim to give my life to helping you live differently. I want us so badly to live like the Apostle Paul who received every moment in light of the realness of Jesus. I mean, just look at chapter 4. Verse 17 doesn't come out of nowhere. Look at verse 1. He says, I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. Oh, let me tell you about Jesus, Timothy. I want to tell you about Jesus. He's the judge of the living and the dead. And he has a kingdom and he's coming back. And what I'm saying to you right now, Timothy, I'm saying before him because I answer to him. Verse 8, Timothy, there's not much left for me here. But henceforth, the, the next big item on my calendar is that crown of righteousness laid up for me. It's that crown that Jesus himself, the righteous judge, remember? Jesus, the righteous judge, Jesus himself is going to award me a crown. And not only me, he's, going to, he's got crowns for everybody who loves him. And then there's verse 14, Alexander the coppersmith. He's still bad news, Timothy. He did me great harm. But Jesus is going to take care of that. Jesus, the judge, remember? Jesus, who is the sovereign one, Jesus will repay Alexander according to his deeds. They will not be swept under the rug. They will not be ignored. Jesus is going to make him pay. Verse 17, Timothy, I was alone. I was on trial in my first defense, and I was alone because nobody else came to stand by me, but Jesus stood by me. Jesus strengthened me, verse 18, and Jesus is going to rescue me from every evil deed. Nero's sword will not have the final say, but Jesus is going to bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Timothy, he's bringing me home. Jesus is about to take me home, and I'm going to see his face, and that makes everything worth it. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. See, do you see that Jesus has been with Timothy this whole time? Jesus has been with Paul this entire time. This is what it means for Paul to have unsmudged clarity on reality, even as he is writing this letter, even as Paul is saying these exact words to Timothy, he is saying them as if Jesus is right beside him and the one he answers to and the one 
who will award him and the one who judges evil and the one who supplies strength when everything else fails and the one who he is about to see. When Jesus is real, he's enough. When Jesus is real, he's enough. We need people, right? We need people. And Jesus is enough. And this means make every effort, do your best, to surround yourself with people who will help you, who will be with you, who can bring you things. And when they don't, when nobody comes, when you're all alone, remember, Jesus is all you really need. Jesus will always be there. Jesus is near to you. Jesus strengthens you because Jesus is real. This was not a theory for Paul. He lived this way. He, he lived this way with Jesus standing by him and strengthening him. And I want this so badly. Brothers and sisters, this is our calling as Christians. Jesus, he intends for us to live this way. I, this is this, I wrote this sermon that way. I tried my, as, as I was as I was studying this text and as I was writing out this manuscript and like as I'm saying this to you right now, here's a little secret. Jesus is here. He stands by me right now in this exact moment. Lord Jesus, he's here. Like right now, Jesus you who are more, you, you are more real than anybody. You're more real than anybody. And I know in this moment, I know that you are attending to me by your spirit. Your spirit indwells me. And, and somehow, I, somehow, wh how, in whatever way I'm doing this, I know that I'm doing this because of you. I, this is because of you. And I want to live here. We, we want to live here. We, we want to live in the realness of Jesus. Right, church? Don't you want to live in the realness of Jesus, in light of his realness? I think the personal nature of this verse, verse 17, I think it warrants for us, I think it warrants for us personal reflection. We read about Paul's experience, and we have to ask, do, I have to ask, do you want to know Jesus, the way that Paul knew Jesus. Can you ask yourself that? Do you want to know Paul? Do you, do you want to know Jesus the way that Paul knew Jesus? Do you want to live, really live, like Jesus is real? Or are you okay with Jesus in the shoebox? First thing to say, any of you are here or whoever may be watching, if, if you don't know Jesus, if you've never trusted in Jesus, I want to invite you to do that. I want to invite you to put your faith in him because Jesus is real and he is the judge and you're going to answer to him. Everybody is going to answer to him. That's just the facts. And yet Jesus offers mercy to you 
at the cross, Jesus suffered for our sins in our place and he died for us. He was crucified, dead, and buried. And then on the third day, he was raised for us, victorious over sin and death. And if you trust him, if you turn from your sins and bow to Jesus, you will be saved. I mean it, it's true. If you turn from your sins and trust in Jesus, you will be forgiven and saved. And then for all the rest of us, who currently do trust in Jesus. We so badly need revival. We need revival in our souls. We, we need revival in our homes. We need revival in our church. And I think the best summary for revival, what is revival? I think the best summary for revival is a renewed and deepening recognition of Jesus' realness. Don't we need that, man? Don't we need that? Don't we want that? So this is what I'd like to do as we close. I want to pray and I want to ask Jesus that he give us a renewed and deepening recognition of his realness. Okay? I want us together to pray as we come to this table and just ask Jesus to do for us what we need so badly for him to do. Lord Jesus, you tell us in your word to ask and we will receive to seek and we will find, to knock and it will be open to us. And so in this moment, Jesus, Jesus, we are asking and seeking and knocking that you would be more real to us than anything else. We so often live in the fog of our circumstances and the, the haze of our activities. And we, we just beg that you in all of that, we beg that you would stand forth clearly and that you would stand forth clearly to stand by us and to strengthen us. Jesus, we ask this in your great name. Amen. Amen. Now, we're coming to this table and we come to this table that Jesus has given to us to remember his death for us. This bread represents his broken body and the cup represents his shed blood. And as we eat the bread, and as we drink the cup, we are renewing our fellowship with one another and our fellowship with Jesus, and we are saying in that moment, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your death for me. Thank you for your life for me. Thank you for your nearness to me. And we do this first for the members, the covenant members of City's Church, but if you're here and you trust in Jesus, we invite you to eat and to drink with us. His body is the true bread and his blood is the true drink. Let us serve you.